Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Kings again, 2 Kings and chapter 5 this morning or page 294. Just use the Bibles we have here if you want, page 294. If you didn't figure it out from the songs, our message and passage today is all about God's grace. Specifically, it's about God's grace uh, for a man named Naaman, who lived about 800 B.C. in Israel, outside of Israel. We're studying about the kings of Israel, but this man was a non-Jew, a foreigner, who received the grace of God. And in so many ways, he would have seemed to have been like the least likely person for God to show his favor or kindness. But you see, the very definition of grace is undeserved kindness, undeserved favor. So there really is no least likely candidate for the grace of God. No matter who we are, no matter what our past, no matter what our sin, that's what grace is all about. So why did Naaman receive grace? Why does anyone receive grace? Why can you receive grace. As we study today, we're going to see God's grace in healing this man, Naaman, but we will see clearly along the way that it applies to God's grace as the basis for how he grants eternal life in heaven as well. 2 Kings 5, the first six verses. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, the neighboring superpower to Israel. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram, soldiers, had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, referring to Elisha, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master, that's the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Hmm. Back in verse 1, the first question we would have is, Why did God give victory to this enemy commander? Uh, A nation that had uh, cruelly oppressed Israel, and yet God had given him victory. God, we have to realize about God that he controls everything. He controls what every nation does. I read a comment on this passage this week by Ralph, or rather Dale Ralph Davis. He says, God doesn't allow pagans to go around unsupervised. God's in charge of whatever Russia does, whatever China does, whatever North Korea does or America, or Canada. It doesn't mean that God is culpable, guilty, 
of wickedness that people or nations do. But it means that he is fully in charge. Nothing goes unnoticed that he is unable to choose or change something. No nation's unsupervised. He allowed the Arameans to have victory. Why? We're kind of guessing, but it could have been discipline for Israel. There was, this was not an obedient era in the life of Israel. But one thing we know from sure for this passage is that the victories that the Arameans had had over Israel is what brought this little girl into the household of Naaman. But think about this little girl's life. What was that like when enemy soldiers burst past the borders into her village and took her as a slave? Did they kill her parents? Or did they just tear her from their arms? What kind of trauma, what kind of terror had come through to this girl and this family at a tender age? And tragically, we know that these kind of atrocities still happen today. I'm in awe of the fact that her faith in God is still intact. And in fact, I would guess if her parents are still alive, they are the ones also trusting God in spite of all that's happened. And somehow providentially, God has allowed her to come into this, the home of this commander and and serve Mrs. Naaman, who we we trust was a, a kind master to her. But she's there when Naaman comes down with this dreaded diagnosis of leprosy. Now, leprosy in that day may not have been the same as what we call leprosy or uh, Hansen's disease today, but whatever it was, it's something that was uh, terribly feared. In fact, leprosy in, in the New Testament time of Jesus uh, was, was really uh, something that would be a sentence of lifelong quarantine. Nobody would go near them. So it's quite the contrast. We have a fearful but valiant commander of an army, and you have a little girl who gives hope. If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria. Do you notice the the heart she has, just even for the people who had captured her? If only my my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. We can't help but be impressed by this young girl. Um, She's in better shape emotionally, spiritually, than any politician, totalitarian ruler today, billionaire, celebrity, because of what? Her hope is in the God of Israel, the one true God. That's where her hope is. The impact of a little girl is more powerful than anyone if their hope is in Christ. We got to see the testimony of a 12-year-old today. Thrilling. And whether you're 12 or 20 or 70 or 80 is inconsequential. It's where is your faith? Who are you trusting in? So the king of Aram says, um, if there's somebody that can heal you, I want you to go. By all means, go. I'll send a letter, he says, and gifts. Um, Ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold. You know I had to look that up, right? Ten talents of silver is 750 pounds. Visualize that, of silver. And these shekels of gold 
is like 150 pounds of gold. How many bars is that of gold? In value, last week, it was $288,000 worth of silver and some $4 million worth of gold, and then throw in like 10 designer suits. That's the gift that he sent. He obviously, the king obviously greatly valued this man. Because if you're a rising superpower, your main asset is your people. And this commander was the reason for their power. And so he, he uh, sends him off with a half ton of precious metals because they are going to buy some help from this supposed faith healer in Israel. And so the Aramean uh, uh, entourage arrives in Samaria at the palace of a king. We don't know which king this was. There were a whole string of kings. The kingdom of Israel at this point is northern and southern. They're divided. And as we study the books of, uh, book of 2 Kings, we're going to discover that, that all 19 kings that ruled in the northern stage area of Israel were wicked. So we know it's a wicked king. We don't know exactly which one. But he receives this letter, and uh, he's really just as pagan as the king of Aram who sent him the letter. Uh, so although the king of Israel was uh, actually a, a, a Jewish by race, he had absolutely no relationship with God. So how does this letter hit the king of Israel? Verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? So he was totally threatened by the letter. So he's terrified. You know, is this a joke? I'm supposed to heal someone of leprosy? What, what am I supposed to do with this? But there is the money, and you can always follow the money. So no, I can't assume anything except he's like, you know, maybe a false flag operation. He's, he's, he's creating a pretext to fight with me. Am I God that I can bring back to life? Think about this. This is the king of Israel. His nation has a, the whole history of the Old Testament to this point. He has access to the scrolls of Scripture that he obviously never read. Because if he would have read it, he would have seen that, that the God who his people knew and that he could know was the God who created all things, the God who had bring the, the nation of Israel through the Red Sea, the God who had taken care of David and had done all these miraculous things and he had no faith in this God of Israel. He was still terrified. In fact, he should have certainly known of the power of God through the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was the one who had called down fire from heaven to destroy the prophets of Baal. You, didn't, you don't forget that in a nation's history somewhere you know, in the last 40, 50 years. And he would certainly know of Elisha as well. Elisha has called down fire from heaven, chapter uh, 1 of, of 2 Kings. He, he knows the power of God, but he has no faith in God. In fact, if he knew about Elijah and Elisha, he should have known that both of these prophets have actually raised someone from the dead. These two boys, the one we studied last week and previously with Elijah. Am I God that I can bring back to life? He has no power, no faith in God. Frankly, this, this king of Israel is like untold millions of people today who might claim Christianity, but it's a cultural Christianity. Or they have a cross around their neck, or they, they're at a building that has a cross or something, but they've never actually put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
as their Savior. Or you could compare them to, to millions of, of, of religious people under other labels throughout the world who have access. If they had the internet, they, could, they would have a Bible. There's still places where the Bible needs to be translated for people, but, but millions, billions of people have, have a Bible. But it's a, God is ignored, but God will not remain ignored forever. He's either all-powerful or not. And this young girl is the one who understood that. So you have a king in fear, and you have a girl who has given Naaman hope. King of Israel is threatened. To live apart from God is a fearful place to be. And while sometimes we might fear totalitarian rulers and the power they yield, wield and, and what they could do, just realize that at their core, any totalitarian evil ruler is at their core afraid. They're afraid of losing control. In fact, anyone trying to control others are controlled by the fear of losing control. It's, it's a fearful place to be, to try to cling to control. On the other hand, now you have Naaman, who is about to be the recipient of the grace of God. But the grace of God is not going to be coming to the proud king of Israel, who should know all about God. The grace of God is going to come to this foreign commander because he is the one who will eventually, here's the key word, humble himself. Naaman has done nothing at this point to deserve healing. He's a, he's a Baal worshiper. Baal was worshipped under another name in Aram called Rimen, but it's the same thing. Pagan idolatry, enemy of God's people, guilty probably of atrocities of war, took this girl as a slave. We even find him to be arrogant. He had, he had all kinds of check marks against him. And he's about to receive the grace of God. So if you happen to be someone who thinks, God's not interested in me, God's, God, God couldn't save me, God wouldn't want me, just realize then you don't understand grace and you don't understand God. Because there is nothing in our past that would keep us from God calling us to himself. In fact, when Jesus, God's son, was on earth, he said that he came to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. He came to seek the lost. The biggest religious lie, the biggest religious lie on earth is good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. You know why that's a lie? There are no good people. There are no good people. We're all sinners. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not one. So God's not looking for the deserving. Then it wouldn't be grace. And, and this event that we're, we're looking at today, is, it's, it's, about a, it's about a healing, but it's really Naaman's testimony of, of salvation. So we need to find out what it was that changed in Naaman that he received the grace of God. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he was really upset, he sent him this message. So Elisha sends a message to the king of Israel, who's gotten this letter that threatens him, why have you torn your robes? Have that man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. 
Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. News of Naaman's arrival at the palace in Samaria certainly was a st- created a stir, and then the news eventually filtered to Elisha, who lived in Samaria, so he heard about that, and, and Elisha really bails out the king and says, have that man come to me. And so Naaman comes with his, his attendants, his chariots, probably a couple of, of mules carrying the, the load of these gifts, half ton of silver and gold. And, 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 and as that whole entourage pulls up to the, the palace in Samaria, it, it seems appropriate. You have a royal group of people showing up at a royal place, which is kind of like lemos with dignitaries pulling up to the White House. But, but what's their next stop? Now this whole royal entourage pulls up before Elisha's house. What kind of house do you suppose the prophet Elisha lived in? Probably one of the simplest mud-walled square couple room homes in all of Samaria, I'm guessing. It'd be kind of like if the presidential limo caravan pulled up in front of where you live. Neighbors all got their face up against the glass or gawking out the windows I hear, I'm sure. But here's like the most humorous part of this. Verse 10, okay, stopped at the door of his house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash. Elisha, you are like this far away. Your driveway's over there. You have this royal entourage, and you won't even step out of the door to say hello and pay respect to this obviously important man. And he doesn't. He sends a messenger how, how offended would he be that he wouldn't even be greeted personally? And all the messenger does is come and says, go wash seven times in the Jordan, you'll be clean. And if you wonder if he was offended, we just keep reading. Verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely, number one, come out to me. And stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hands over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And then the water thing. Are not Abna and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, that's where he came from, better than any of the waters of of Israel? I don't go wash in a muddy Jordan River. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in in a rage. A, I should have been respected. Come out to me. I'm an important man. Come. Secondly, wave your hand over me. Kind of like, you know, the the faith healers on TV today in the best suit and and kind of like, you know, dramatic wave their hand over the person in this supposed healing. Make it dramatic. Make it a big deal. Come on. And then thirdly, your dirty Jordan River. You see, Naaman is trying to tell God, basically, how he wants to be healed. Here's my script, you silly no-name prophet. I want this respect. I want the drama. If I got a wash, I want it to be on, you know, on a well-manicured banks of my river. Because at the heart of it, Naaman is saying, I, 
I want everyone to see that I have Israel's God in my back pocket. He, he does what I want. Religion of the world is all about manipulating God. Because they don't understand the real God. You don't manipulate God. Naaman saying, I'm a great man and I deserve to be treated as one. And so he goes away angry. I mean, verse 11 starts with anger. Verse 12 ends with anger or, or rage. Arrogant people are angry people. If, if you have, if you're dealing with angry people, can you see it? Though that forces us to look in the mirror a bit and say, when we're angry, maybe it's not that stuff that's happening. Maybe, maybe it's me. But this is a moment for, for, for Naaman to decide something. Will, will I keep my pride intact or humble myself? He's already left the premises. He, he's, he's in a huff and he's, he's going to make his way back to a ram with leprosy. So his servants stage an intervention. Verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? It's simple. Now, if we... If we if this was like a, an audio version of the Bible, we should probably put about two or three minutes at least between verse 13 and 14 because I think when the servants told him that, he like started to think, oh, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay proud and angry? Or will I believe in the God of Israel and do the simple thing he said? Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Naaman's servants spoke truth. He would have done a great thing, but would he do a humble thing to simply wash and follow the instructions of God who is going to heal him. And he did. And his flesh was clean like that of a young boy. Take that oil of Olay. Anti-aging, moisturizing, whatever, magic. He was healed because he humbled himself. He humbled himself to trust God. He humbled himself to believe it was true, what God's prophet said. He humbled himself to realize all the money he had brought was worthless. He humbled himself to do it God's way. So this is a record of a miraculous healing, but it's really more than that, isn't it? It's a testimony of how a proud, godless man came to know and believe. And in this case, had his life saved or his body healed by the one true God. If you've ever questioned how you can be made right with God eternally, just know this, it won't be on your terms. 
It'll be on his terms. It won't be because of what you can offer him. It'll be what he can offer you. Because if it's what you offer him, you'll remain a proud person taking credit for your salvation. But if it's a matter of receiving what he is offering you, you have nothing you can do but praise him. And God will be praised. Naaman's only part was to humbly accept the gift. So if, if, if the issue of how you can be right with God eternally, if the issue of how you can be in heaven when you die has ever been unclear, please start with considering the nature of God in this healing. Because that's who God is and that's how God works. Naaman was not only changed physically that day, he was changed spiritually, I'm convinced. Verses 15 and 16. Then Naaman and all his attendants, so they'd gone to the Jordan River, right? So they got to come back to Samaria. Went back to the man of God. He stood before him, that's Elisha, and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. That's his that's his testimony. There is no God except God in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. He brought all this stuff, right? The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Nahum urged him, he refused. So, so Naaman got it right. I know now there's just one God. That means he had to reject everything about, he had ever thought about religion back in Aram. This was, this was the Humpty Dumpty moment for, for the king, for, for, the, for Naaman, because he says, everything in my worldview, my ideas of who God is and how you can be right with God and really how many gods there are, everything has fallen. And now I know there's just the one God of Israel. And if he knew a little bit more of what Israel believed, he'd know that's the God who had created heaven and earth. That's a God who had delivered Israel. That's a God who had, had established the priesthood. That's the only way he could ever be right with God. But even then, so if you want to put it in terms of salvation, I think he has, he has been converted, right? But there's still like this nagging thought, but you know, this gift, uh, it, it's so hard to imagine that it's free that I want to give God this, this the, the prophet, these gifts. And uh, it might not have seemed wrong at first that Elisha would take this gift. After all, he's not paying for the healing. He already is healing, right? It's not like you have to put the money up front and then you get healed. And what could you have done with that money if you're Elisha? You could have built a big, beautiful, new school of the prophets. And we get to chapter 6, we find out that's exactly what they needed. They had a building project going on. But he refused. Another time, perhaps, a believer giving a big gift would be accepted. But this time, Elisha knew that if I take this gift, I would be confusing what grace means. And so I cannot even let him, like, pay me back or think he's paying me back. I, 
I can't let him think that God's gift of healing was in any way a transaction or a promise, that there's any fine print. I will not accept a thing. God is in no one's debt. That's why salvation is by grace. He doesn't owe anyone. He doesn't obligate anyone. You don't buy his blessing. You can't, you can't even pay him back for his salvation. You can't. When we serve or give or help someone, we are not paying him back. It wasn't like in the fine print. It's a way to say thank you. But it's, it's not part of some deal. If you give your young child a, their first bicycle, Christmas or birthday, you spend a couple hundred bucks, and uh, they turn around and say, oh, Dad, thank you so much. Here's $8.45 that I have collected in my piggy bank, and I want to give that to you. You'll say, no way. And the reason you'll say no way is because you don't want the gift ruined. A gift is a gift is a gift. And so Elisha was solidifying for Naaman what God's grace means. It's because God has chosen to love you, and he is a gracious God, and you have simply humbly trusted in what he asked you to do, to respond to what he was offering you. And Naaman was stunned, rightly, by the grace of God. And then he responded with what God actually wants in response. Verse 17. If you will not, if you won't take my gift, said Naaman, please, let me, your servant, be given as much earth, that's dirt, as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make big burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. So he's, he's committed, he's clear to worship only the true God, and, and he, he, this dirt would be a reminder, perhaps he would use this dirt, be kind of his place of personal worship, because he's far away from the temple, he can't keep coming back. But, verse 18, may, may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters, that's the king of Aram, when my master enters the temple of Remen, the, the Baal equivalent, to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Remen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. It's kind of a question, kind of a request. He says, I, I realize I'm going to have a, have a job to do, but... I'm committed to only worshiping the true God. Worship is exactly what God wants in response. It's all he wants. It's all we can give God that has value to God is our praise, worship, thanks. And so God's grace was finally clear. Naaman had become a believer of the one true God. But then it hits him. There are some practical problems when I get back home and got to go to work on Monday morning. Because I am the commander of the king's army. I am, therefore, it seems, his bodyguard wherever he goes. I'm the one he trusts the most. And he still worships at the temple of Rimmon. Would God forgive me if I need to go along with him because he worships there and when he bows down, I'm taking he's maybe older or something, and he's got to be helped down and up. And, and if, if, I, if I bow with him to help, it, is that okay? Verse 19. 
First line, go in peace, Elisha said. Elisha said yes. Some who read this criticized Naaman for this request, like somehow this was compromising his new faith. There you go. You're committed to God, but then you aren't committed to God. I don't think it is that. He's just working out the complications of how a believer lives in an unbelieving world. And often those kind of things become areas of conviction. Some would say this is, this is like Daniel 3, right? Isn't it? Because uh, the king said everybody has to bow down to this image. And Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow down. And paid the consequences. And then God delivered them. So sh- shouldn't he have done that? Evidently not in this case. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to decide and declare, who are you following, this God or this God? And so they made it clear. But this really wasn't that. This was just Naaman letting the pagan king be pagan. And there's a point where we have to let pagans be pagans. During my college years, I've mentioned before, my, my job was working at a truck, trucking company uh, mechanic shop. I was exposed to a few words and uh, jokes I had not heard growing up. Good little Mennonite farm boy, right? But I discovered that I could be different without somehow insisting that they be different. They, they could see, hopefully, something of who I am, but I could not force or change who they are. And I think this request is simply about a new believer who is grappling with how do you maintain a pure testimony without being rude to your boss. And I'm sure that you've faced that yourself. Naaman had leprosy. He was only healed when he humbled himself to trust in God's prophet Elisha. And the only response he could give was worship. Because the healing was free. Some of you have rightly sensed the analogy of Naaman's conversion to how people can be made right with God today as well. While today we live on the other side of the cross, historically, this happened, of course, before Christ, and we live after. So we have, obviously, more knowledge about how God saves us. It's all through Christ. Christ's death paid for sins of those who lived before as well as after. But while we know more, it is still the same issue that we must put our faith in God's provision for our sin. Uh, So if for any reason you are not sure, absolutely sure right now today that if you were to die tonight, you would be instantly in heaven, then listen carefully so that you would understand the grace of God as well. The story really begins, your story begins back in Genesis 1 because that's where we see both God's good desire for us as well as the problem that happened. Because in Genesis 1 we find that God created Adam and Eve because he wanted to have a relationship with them. God made mankind completely different than anything else in the creation. We, are, we didn't evolve into this condition. He made us uniquely capable of understanding who he is and having a relationship and communicating with him. Gave them one instruction, don't eat <clears throat> from the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good. Don't eat 
from the one thing, that one instruction, and they sinned and did it. And from then on, every other human being that has descended from Adam and Eve has been born with a sin nature. God still wanted to have a relationship with them. Isn't that amazing? He still wants that relationship with us. And so he provided a way, it was always in his plan, that sinful men and women, boys and girls, could have an eternity with him. And so let's just think through what the Bible has said, because it is by grace, just as Naaman was healed by grace. But it requires a complete humility before God to have eternal life in heaven. That is the bottom line issue of our own hearts. We have to admit that we are sinners. We have to admit that there is no one righteous, not even one, Romans 3.10. So this is where Naaman and Elisha have everything in common. You and me and the most evil ruler you can think of and your nicest neighbor and the drug dealer, it's where we all have something in common because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some fall more short, you could say, but we're, we're all just tiny efforts towards righteousness compared to the absolute standard of complete holiness that is God. All sin and fall short. So, and he's writing, Paul is writing this to Christians in Rome, and so he says, all, you all Christians, all are justified freely by his grace. Justified means to be made right with God. How are we made right with God? Freely by his grace. No money, no good works, no effort, no church, no baptism, nothing. You don't add up merit to, to be right with God. You're justified freely by his grace. So does that mean that God's just passing out the candy of, of salvation? No, somebody had to pay for it. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, that's the cross. Every gift is paid for by somebody. Nothing's free, right? And our salvation was paid by Christ. So I admit I'm a sinner. Understand then the bad news is that I deserve God's judgment. If I got what I deserved, it would be eternal death, judgment, and hell. For the wages of sin, what we've earned is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the, two, the, two, the contrast. If I got what I deserved, it would be death and hell. If I got what is a gift, I get eternal life in heaven. It could not be more opposite, but I have to understand, I am the sinner who deserves that. Thirdly, this is the main, main issue. I have to understand that Jesus died for my sin and rose again. That this redemption that came through Christ Jesus came at the complete cost that Jesus paid. Jesus, as we sang, Jesus paid it all. But God demonstrates his own love for us. That's how he thinks about us. In this, while we were still sinners, so many people believe you have to clean up your act and then maybe God will be interested in you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when he says he died for us, don't, don't read it too fast because that means he died instead of us. He was taking the penalty that we deserved. This means that God the Father took all the sin of all the world of all time and placed it legally, judicially, spiritually on Jesus, and then God the Father punished Jesus in your place. That's, that's how great his love was. 
Verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, because that's what we are when we're sinning, when we sin and God is holy, it's like there's this irreconcilable difference until he reconciles us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? He died for us and he rose for us. He died to pay the penalty of our sin. He rose proving he can give us this offer of eternal life. He came up from the dead. That's why you can know you can be resurrected from the dead as well. So he died and rose again. So understand you're a sinner. Understand you deserve God's judgment. Understand Jesus took that judgment or punishment for you. And you have a decision, much like Naaman did. Well, I humble myself and put my trust in what God says. Humbly trust in Christ alone, not in good works or anything that might come under that label. For God so loved the world, that's us, sinners, that he gave his one and only son, that's the cross where God punished our sin. Here it is, that whoever believes in him, that's our choice, will not perish, that's hell, but have eternal life. What does it mean to believe in him? It doesn't just mean believing that there was a Jesus, that something happened. To believe in means I'm going to put my trust in Christ. Like you'd take a chair and you'd sit on the chair. Now you're trusting in it. So the question is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of righteous things that he has done, that we had done, but because of his mercy. Why did he save us? Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace, undeserved, you have been saved through faith. Faith is the same as to believe in him. What are you putting your faith in? By grace, you've been saved through faith, meaning faith in Christ. He paid for my sin. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. No payment. Why? So no one can boast. So only God gets the glory for it. We like to share the three circles because it helps us somehow, I think, make clear in our own mind the question, what are we trusting in? Is it C, Christ? that he paid for your sins? What are you personally putting your trust in for eternal life? Is it Christ that he died for your sins? Is it W, works? Something that you're doing, you think you qualify, you've, you've gone through certain rich religious rituals, or you've done prayer to prayer, something that you thought you had an experience, something. Are you trusting in what Christ did, or are you trusting in something you did? Or some would say, well, it's both. Surely it's important what Christ did. But you, you realize what the verses have been saying. If it's not by works of righteousness, if it's not by works, then it's not by works alone. It's not by works plus anything. It's not by works plus Christ, because then if we didn't have works, we wouldn't be saved. It is Christ alone. So what are you trusting in for eternal life? Let's take a moment to uh, bow our heads, if you would. And if you've already made this decision to put your faith in Christ, I would urge you to pray for others who have not. But as, as in, this, in the quietness of our hearts, I would just ask anyone here who has uncertainty or has never placed their faith in Christ to simply think through what the scriptures have said. Do you understand that you are a sinner separated from God eternally and that you would actually deserve his judgment 
And then do you understand that Christ paid the full price, the penalty for your sin? And if you understand that, would you simply, in your own heart, quietly before God, say, I understand and I'm putting my faith in Christ alone right now. Your thoughts, your words, uh, the exact words are not important. Just to say something, I understand I'm a sinner. I realize Christ paid for my sin. I'm putting my faith in Christ alone. Just express that to him right now. And then tell him, thank you. Thank you. And God's people said, amen. If you've made that decision this morning, would you somehow let us know either through a contact card or call us or uh, go online or something to email us? We'd love to help you grow in your faith in Christ uh, because he is the only way and faith in Christ is the only way. And we would love that you would know for sure that you have settled that issue forever.